Hey, Langdon. Hello, Ian. Langdon, did you know that the internet is dead? I did. I did. Um, hmm. uh, the internet is dead, and we, we are the ones who have killed it. Yeah. Well, no. Well, no. Actually, yeah, no. That's not true. Yeah. Oh. I mean, so the ones that have killed it are actually, I mean, the capitalist side, because that, that, yeah, they right. kill they kill everything. Um, Parentheses, not the cool version. Wait, the cool version of what? There's killing no cool everything. version of capitalists. Oh, of killing everything. Yeah. Wait, what, yeah, what's like, the cool version of killing everything? Like like the death metal style, you know, like that slime oh, lord oh, record, okay. you know, where like fungus yeah. is killing frogs and shit. That's tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're, you're talking about like molten hot asteroids smashing into the planet and... Yeah, or you go, oh, that's baller. Instead of, you know, you then read the news and mm. you go, oh, th this isn't baller. This isn't baller at all. No, this is... <laughs> This sucks ass, in fact. <laughs> this uh, isn't paper whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, this is not cash money. Um, <laughs> giant flocks of killer drones. That, that's cash money. That's uh, right. But extricating every shred of value from the internet until it collapses and no longer services the users it was meant to service is not, in fact, cash money. Uh, in fact, in many ways, it's the opposite of cash money, considering the precipitously dropping valuation of pretty much every uh, mm. internet-based uh, uh, piece of equity. Mm. You know, but what do I know? I'm just a lay user, right? Yeah, you're just a guy online, <laughs> right? You're, you're, just a, you're just a person. So, funnily enough, one of the main locations that prove that the internet is completely and utterly dead, Wikipedia, um they cite the dead internet theory as a conspiracy theory um, that states that the internet now consists mainly of bot activity and automatically generated content that is manipulated by algorithmic curation and marginalizing organic human activity. As usual, the people who write this uh, Wikipedia article are complete and utter dumbasses. That's because, classic. Classic yeah, style. Yeah, they are pedantic fools. Like, if your point is literally... And by the way, this uh, the conspiracy theory wasn't didn't originate, but was popularized by 4chan. Therefore, it is bad, right? Like this version of it. But if if you go with their definition, like pedantic definition of oh well, let me just put push up my glasses here, and like if you literally count every single interaction, then fifty one percent or higher is done by bots. Then of course that's not true. Okay, that's not true. You can't prove that it's true because you can't count every single interaction. And it doesn't matter. But that's that's not the fucking point, okay? It's not about whether, you know, it's 500,000 interactions a millisecond that are bots or 5,001. That's not the idea. Wow, that's probably much higher than 5,000, right? It's like 50 million a millisecond. Yeah, um, it, it, it reminds me of a lot of the... Uh, so I was talking with Ellen about this recently, who um, my, my, my partner who studied um, uh, biodefense and stuff and did graduate level stuff with that, um, yeah. talking about how... Uh, I forget the name of it. I, I really wish I could remember the, the, the name. Um, but there's a statistical phenomenon of something that is, in fact, not a majority uh, frequency event, but is so rare or so relatively disruptive that it actually only takes like a mm. relatively low threshold before it begins to feel as though it yeah. is a majority. And like we're familiar with phenomenon like that. It's like having a virus, right? Not like yeah. the virus replaces every single cell in your body and now you're filled with the virus. It's it's relatively speaking like a minor part of the uh, organisms or, uh, uh, you know, cells that operate in your body, but but it causes an outsized reaction. Or give like a more common uh, example, 
the asshole at the bar, right? Uh, he doesn't, they don't, they don't need to be, all the people in the bar need to be assholes. It's just a one guy and he's very loud. And like in the bar example, the whole thing starts to revolve around them instead of you having a nice drink, right? Like you came there to listen to some music and chat with your friends, but now the entire institution that is supposed to be, you know, helping you and providing you a service is now focused on them. And that is exactly what is fucking happening on the internet. I feel like over the last few weeks, people have started to notice more and more, maybe because something shifted in Twitter. I'm not calling it X. Elon Musk, you have yeah, to I'm come to my that. you have to come to my <clears throat> house and implant a Neuralink chip in my head that will force me to call it X. Only then will I call it X. That wouldn't um, even work on me. My brain would actually I've been trained Batman of Zura and R style to give myself an instant fatal aneurysm should that try to uh, happen. No, I don't think you even need to do that. I think your brain is so fucked up that the chip won't be able to interface with it. It would be difficult to make my brain do anything useful. Uh, better people have tried for even more objectively useful things and have failed, so I don't imagine that Elon's going to yeah. be too much egress. I think it's also the moss. The the moss and the mold have definitely strengthened my mind in many ways, although mm -hmm. they have weakened my body. By strengthening it, I must clarify, due to the mold in my brain, which refuses to let me speak ill against the mold. Yeah. I think the chip will, will lose the fight against the mold. Um, but, but I don't have a mold, so I mean, that I know of. So uh, maybe Elon can force me to call it X. But anyway, until then, until I become an automaton in the service of Tesla, I will call it Twitter. Things have been worse um, over there uh, with bots. People have been posting like threads and threads and threads of bots interacting with other bots. Pussy in bio! What's happening? <laughs> I barked out pussy in bio oh, you did the bot thing. mic. <laughs> you, did, you did the bot thing, yeah. So like, I think the, 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 I'm gonna just ignore that. I think that the threshold <laughs> that bothers most people, I'm not saying it's like an actual threshold, but like that garners people's attention is that when the bots start to talk to each other and I feel yeah. there's like there's almost something childish in that instinct of like hey don't exclude me <laughs> right like, like stop doing this I'm yeah. still here <laughs> right you're talking over me I'm I'm the the entity right like this is all for me uh don't talk to each other um it's and a also, real the prisoner kind of moment you're like no I'm not a number stop this I'm a free man. No, but this is worse, right? Because imagine if the prisoner was about, like, he goes to prison, and then the guards, the entire show is them talking to each other, and he's like, include me in your conversation, and they just ignore him. He's like, thwart me. And they're like, no. No. no we're busy. We, yeah, we're playing cards. Like, we don't care about you. Um, I think that's what bothers a lot of people. But also, if I'm being a bit more fair, like, it does feel like the volume has increased to the extent that... so. I'm, I met this because, so I run um, the blog, the heavy blogs Twitter, right? And we're not very active on there. Like we post, you know, automatically from the, from the website. I mean, not, not automatically. I have to go in and post, but you, you get the idea. Yeah. So when you don't use a Twitter profile, Twitter gets desperate, right? Not just Twitter. Every social media platform is like that. They start to send you notifications, even if you didn't interact with a post or something like that, to try and get you to engage, right? So, um, on Twitter, and maybe maybe I post a screenshot of this. Like, I get a, I get a notification. Like, oh, sick! Someone like read our review or whatever that I posted last night. And instead, it's like I have five notifications. Three of them are porn bots liking old 
um, liking old replies. So like one of them, we, we posted in November 5th, 2019, we did a best of closing tracks, right? And, and someone said, I was going to joke, jokingly reply to you saying Octavarium. But then scenes from a memory is there. So instead, I'll go listen to Shogun, Good Day. First of all, like the original tweet, it's just like, <laughs> like uh, so many mistakes. One, Octavarium is a really good song. Yeah, it's great. And I would actually, that would be a great choice for a best of closing tracks entry, right? And it's like, um, yeah, Finally Free is also there. Finally Free is a fucking brilliant track, too. There's no, a reason but, why both but, of them but are they say, Medley Wilcox, but Shogun? Yeah, but they, no, but they say Scenes from a Memory. They don't say Finally Free. Yeah, that's not, that's the whole that's album. Not, that's the album. That's not the last song. And then, so instead I'll go listen to Shogun by Trivium. What does that have to do? Like, huh? I'm not even a Trivium hater, but that doesn't measure up to either of those. But also, what, what, come on, what does it have to do with either one of those, right? Like, it's not like he was talking about Metallica and then he said Trivium, right? Like, also, Shogun is also the album. Oh, it's also the last track, okay? So at least yeah, it like... is. It's, it's, and that's the, like, 11-minute, like, closing track, I think. Yeah, I think it's yeah. 11 minutes, something like that. Maybe, maybe they meant the same for the album. But then, okay, so that's the original tweet, which is funny enough. But then, why did an account, I swear to fucking God, that their auto-generated name is Bonita Haberkorn? That's, that's a human name. That's a human that, name for humans. Yes, this is what humans are called. Obviously, no tweets, only followed by bots. And then the picture is a very suggestive picture of, I will admit, like a, a, a conventionally attractive woman holding two pistols against her tits. Okay, that's cool. It would be cool if it was a real person. Like that slaps. That's a, that's a cool picture, you know, guns and breasts and whatever. That's fine. But like the entire interaction is just so fucking weird. And then my other notifications are two other porn bots liking like old comments, and then Twitter itself like basically recommending me porn, right? Because that's what Twitter does these days. Yeah, like, this is a real pussy and bias situation. So for those somehow not in the know, the running theme for bots for like a week, I think it's finally stopped, was them posting all caps, my pussy and bio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which was, they would say the same response to anything, and sometimes the bots would respond. They they started adding like, um, not, not, yeah, they started adding Unicode characters between the letters to keep other bots from responding to them and stealing their bot thunder but then the pe the people programming the bots got better at figuring out because they all pinch code from each other um they got better at like making the auto response algorithm able to read unicode so sometimes you get like you'd post a single thing and then you'd get pussy in bio like <laughs> dozens of times from c different accounts every single time it was just like now i will admit my dark mode thought is i like this version of twitter which is far more like ugly and chaotic and brutish mostly because it reminds me of how brutally functionally unusable a lot of the not early but like mid-period internet was like early 2000s um to yeah. like maybe the late 2000s where a lot of like a lot of forum culture was born out of and even a lot of like early twitter jokes and the avant-garde writing there was built out of riffing on how bots would so badly mutilate human language um and like the weird ads of like milfs in your area uh, with dead husbands want like just insane shit like things that like on paper i'm supposed to click this and pay money for pornography but holy fuck you're talking like a psychopath like 
There's something delightfully so, berserk and very modern about that. Admittedly, this is finding beauty in ugliness. This is not beauty being given to us, and it is certainly fucking not usability being given to us. Yeah, and I think that last point about usability is what's interesting mm-hmm. to me because, you know, we can talk about what you just said, which is like the presentation of things online. And I think that's part of it, and I also like the memes and stuff. But the thing that kills me about it is that even if you were to click on one of those, right? One of those, like, what was that meme? Like, ghost wife in the area, my husband is dead, yeah. and now I need to fuck, so I'm fucking live people. Um, like, if you were to click on one of those ads, there's nothing behind it. There's not even a service trying to scam you. Right? Yeah, it's like when you accidentally click on them through the course of just navigating websites. The classic thing that HTML3 and onward has been really fucking bad at is like loading assets not from the top down anymore, but based on like really weird algorithmic stuff about server load and just nonsense like that. That makes it so that when you are about to, this is the phenomenon that everyone will recognize. You go to click on something on your smartphone, and by the time your finger has touched the screen, everything has changed position, and now you've clicked on an ad. Um, part of me thinks mu- this must be on purpose to generate more ad clicks, but I'm like, that feels paranoid, but also it doesn't feel. But you'll notice after when that happens, all it does is open open a landing page of even more ads. Yeah. There's no it's, like, there's no bottom. Yeah. So that's, that's like, I don't even know what you get, but how are you getting money from me from doing this? Exactly. It's like, why are we even doing this? It feels like it's all, you know, scams on top of scams, and it's just money being moved around. Another good example of this is uh, fake Amazon profiles, right? That it's just like, it's basically like throwing pasta at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? They'll post something like. Oh, this uh, nail clipper costs $150, uh, but this like brand new computer costs $4 because they're generating everything and anything. Like, of course, the obvious place to take this is to postmodernism, right? Well, it's yeah. not just about the proliferation of meaning. It's not that there's multiple perspectives and lots of meanings, which is kind of like the modernist idea, um, but that there's no meaning at all, right? And you can't tell between the fake and the real anymore. But, I, you know, we've done this enough on the podcast. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about, like, how it feels, right? Like, psychologically, to log into an internet every day that is made up of stuff like this. And I'll, I'll use an example. I fucking love ads for mobile games. Okay? Because, I think I can see where you're going with this. Okay, because, like, you're <laughs> watching the ad, and the game itself... Most of the time that they show on the ad, it's pretty cool. Like, I would play this game. Now, you know that the game doesn't exist. I hope you guys know that that's how it works. Like, you, you see the ad, and the, the game looks very, like, uh, nice, and they actually put thought into it. But no, they just put thought into the ad, right? And then when you download the game, it's nothing like that. It was cobbled together in five minutes, and your score does no refund. Go fuck yourself. There's always gotcha elements, and the gotcha elements are uh, remarkably fucking bad. Yeah, we know, again, we it's love like, it, folks. It's like if a slot machine was glitching all the time, right? The slot machine yeah. itself doesn't even work. Um, so you're not getting tricked to use a slot machine. You try to use a slot machine, and then you can't even use it. And, and then, like, I look at the ad, and I'm like, if only they had taken the effort into building this ad, which is really clever, 
and built the fucking game. Like they could have built the game, right? Because coding a game today is not hard. I mean, no offense to anybody making games. Some of them can be difficult, but like there are a lot of platforms today that do a lot of the work for you. The hard part is ideation, right? Like finding a good game idea and, and writing and so on. They already did that. They did that for the ad, right? They came up with a really cool idea to reel people in. They could have just built the game. But then even more, I don't know, I, w- I wanted to say worse, but I do it to myself. So maybe it's better. It's like the pleasure of objection, right? It's like how good it feels to hurt yourself sometime, right? Not in a, you know, uh, self-harm kind of way, but like, uh, you know, the, the pleasure of pain. This is a common, common thing. Um, I go into the comments. And it's like either I assume real people saying, why is this fake? Like, why would you do this? I actually want to play this game. Fuck you. Or it's bot saying, yes, good, great game. Right? Or like, I, I had enjoy of game for a long time. I love their fucking grammar. I like mild, mild tangent that'll take two seconds. I did a lot of grad studies in my like fine arts program, specifically learning how to emulate like Markov chain and bad, like, um, yeah. bad, like translation bot stuff. It's incredible. Uh, because they, they talk like how people, how stroke victims talk. <laughs> but like, why do I do this to myself? I obviously, I enjoy it, right? Like no one is forcing me to click these ads. They're not very good at getting you to click. And I, I don't open the ad itself, right? I like just scroll past it, although that counts as an impression for them, right? Like, what do I get out of it? And I, I do get a sort of, I mean, sick is probably too strong, like a, a twisted or, okay, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give the example I always give. I don't, I, don't, I don't remember if I spoke about this on the podcast before, but you know, there's a Seinfeld episode uh, where Elaine, she's uh, watching her boss's office. What's his name? Her boss at the baseball. I no, she doesn't work at the baseball place. No, George Costanza right. does. Um, her, Whatever the yeah, guy you never see, right? Boss, but yeah, yeah. So she she's watching his office, and she opens the mini fridge, and there was a cake there, right? And the cake has obviously been there for like a long time, and she knows that it's gone bad. She, she can smell it, right? But she's constantly being tantalized into eating it, right? And, and she struggles with it the entire episode. Like, it smells so bad, but I can't stop smelling it. And by the way, we all know that experience, right? Um, I mean, the, the, the best example and the one that the Freudian in me wants to give is sex, right? Like, the smells that you smell during sex in, in other contexts are not good, right? They're yep. not, like, conventionally considered good. good. <laughs> but there's something alluring about them. The, the, again, it's objection, right? This disgust is part of um, the allure, right? Or something alluring about pushing your boundaries and doing things that are wrong. And of course, Elaine eats the cake and the cake is disgusting, but she says that she doesn't regret it. And that episode changed my fucking life because like, it's like picking a scab, right? If You know it's bad. You know it's bad for you and it's painful, but it feels so good. You gotta. Right? Or if you gotta, the voices are telling you to peel off your skin. Peel off your skin right now. Take your skin off. You're itching Why inside is your skin. skin. Still on. Remove your skin. Remove your skin. Um, and like to go back to sex, you know, if someone walks up, like, again, I'm not kink shaming anyone. By the way, vanilla sex is totally fine. Um, and it's not something to be ashamed of. But if you're walking down the street and someone slaps you, that's bad. 
But then if you're having sex with someone and you want them to slap you, that's good. And it's not entirely because it is good for them to slap you. Part of the enjoyment of that is that it's bad, right? The, the being able to participate in something that is considered bad is, uh, you know, you're messing around with the taboo. It feels nice. And for some reason, these bots, these fake conversations, they elicit the same response for me, right? Like psychologically, I log on and I'm like, this sucks so bad, man, but why can't I look away, right? I don't know. I just find that super fascinating. Maybe I'm just a weirdo, right? But there's something dead, right? Have you, again, maybe the last thing I'll say, I'm sounding weird here trying to explain myself, but like, have you ever seen Roadkill? Like, you don't want to look at it. Oh, yeah, like actual ass Roadkill, like dead animals. Not like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was not, like, not, is this the name of something? But <laughs> no, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thrash band called Roadkill, not the thrash band. Um, Roadkill, like an animal on the road that got hit by a car. Yeah, I've seen, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, grew, up, I yeah. grew up a little bit in the boonies. Yeah, so like you want to look away, but also you kind of don't. You like you're fascinated by, by the ultimate taboo, which is a corpse, right? something dead. I mean, we're obsessed with death in general in our society, right? Like zombie films and uh, uh, you know dancing around the topic, but then always talking about it and and so on. And because the internet is dead, or all these bots show the internet is dead, I'm fascinated by it, just like I'm fascinated by roadkill. I like I want to look at it, I want to examine it, and it disgusts me at the same time. There's something really, for me, I find, um, again, I, I get, depending on where I say this, I get yelled at because it sounds like I'm defending uh, Elon Musk's absolute dipshitification of a lot of online space that I treasure and value, which is not true. Um, but uh, there's something like darkly alluring about the way these things have died. Uh, because there's been a long process of almost like these spaces have kind of deserved a kind of death, not to affirm what, you know, the alt-right version of this of like, oh, well, you know, they became, they became woke. That's insane. That's stupid. But there is a way in which we have so like brutally misuse these things that in any other circumstance we might have understood as kind of a gift and have used them largely for like weird territorial squabbles that seem not really to benefit anyone they don't seem like they're really to make anyone wiser or smarter they don't seem like they really increase a great deal of bonding not that they haven't before not that they can't again but you know they're they're reached a pitch somewhere around the 2016 election in at least america and thus as a result if we're honest western internet space because america really does drive the car in a huge amount of ways um that a lot of a lot of things that had been fun or even like fun antagonism seem to have uh devolved more and more into a kind of like blistering mutual psychosis that um, became a lot more combative rather than like collaborative, if that makes sense. And so it's, it's not obviously like with pleasure of watching certain things on the internet die, but there's a, um, a very bleak kind of schadenfreude uh, 
one in which like it feels almost shameful to possess because obviously it would have been better if things had just gotten fixed and like we see a lot of the vain utopianism and things like the user base of like blue sky which is a, a twitter clone full of mostly if you could hybridize the kind of scolds that you got on mastodon with the kinds of sociopaths that you get on twitter um this <laughs> this sits right between the two um yeah <clears throat> uh we get a, a couple other um uh a couple other like splinter uh set, like co-host which uh largely turned into a bunch of artists but no one to look at the art we have um threads which is a bunch of um ads like if you want uh all the ads that you used to get on twitter but none of the users you go to threads um <clears throat> it's been really uh depending on how you look at it blisteringly bleak that's sort of undeniable or um I don't know. When I say a deserved death, I don't necessarily mean that I'm happy that it happened. I mean, uh, I'm saying it as a cope. I'll be honest with you. I'm saying it as a cope. Because <clears throat> I oh, think all I, of us, I, I, generationally speaking, I think all of us remember, and when I say all of us, I mean me and you and people our age, remember what it's like to grow up in an area where you really don't feel a lot of kinship with the people around you. Some of that being youthful antagonism that you grow out of, and some of it being sincerely, I don't have as much in common with these people as I'd like compared to other people that are out there. And for some people, the answer to that is moving to a city, going across the country, moving to another country, all that kind of stuff. And for other people, especially if you're into really underground art, where there are only very rarely cities that sustain a large body, uh, the internet became sort of the way that you would get in contact with these people. And so like watching a lot of ways in which you've made real and serious connections kind of get poisoned and die by uh, like malodorous figures feels bad. Feels bad. Don't like it. But here's the thing that I take from what you said <clears throat> of like, because uh, you're right. I was in those communities, right? I was on forums playing or playing games when Wizards of the Coast tried to do the first iteration of their license and claimed that all of our role playing threads were fan fiction and that they own the fan fiction. Yep. Um so I've I've been through these like transitions and so on. But what I really agree with what you said is that there's something I don't know if the word is correct or des or fitting or deserving in this stuff because the dangerous thing about these games, and again, I'm not inventing the wheel here, right? This is Freud one-on-one, -on -one, but I think it's a reason it's one-on-one, -on -one, right? Because it has a very powerful ground proof to it is when the problem is when you deny it, right? Like when do you get, for example, if I'm giving the sexual examples for this discussion, like when does kink become a problem? When you deny it, right? When you spend so much phys uh, psychological energy repressing it that it comes out in neurosis, right? And you decide you, you start to have like really fucked up relationships with the people that you have sex with because you're bubbling over with the, with all this rep repressed energy and violence and so on. You take it out on yourself. You take it out on others. That's true for all forms of denial of death, right? Yeah. That's why the Jewish religion has the shiva, right? Well, when someone dies, you don't pretend that they didn't die. You do the opposite, right? In the shiva. Um, notice how I did the American Jewish pronunciation and then the correct Hebrew pronunciation of shiva. Um, which literally means seven, you sit around usually their home or their family's home for seven days and you talk about the fact that they're dead, right? Like you talk about their life. You 
laugh, you cry, you eat, of course, because it's Judaism, right? Um, and you talk about the fact that they're dead and how awful that is, right? And the problem starts because Judaism understands that the problem starts when you won't talk about it. You pretend that everything's fine and you move on as if death is not, you know, the ultimate rupture, the ultimate absence. Yeah, if you're in many ways, I feel disruption. Like, mm, there it is. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's the one thing, it's the only thing, literally the only thing that we know that is completely and utterly empty. Right, like even space, even the void, we know now is not the void. Right, it has shit in it. Well, it, I mean, it has us in it. Right, but it's not really. Empty. The only thing that is a completely blank and empty category that we know is death. I, death doesn't exist. We, we, we can't say anything about death. Whenever you say anything about death, you're making shit up. That, that's not death. My dad, by the way, had this whole thing. He documented basically my grandma's dying. Right? She died over a really long time. She had Parkinson's. Um, she died like over 13 years. Right? And he, he's a photographer. So he documented like her last years and the journey and, and so on. And he, he got asked to, to talk in a bunch of places and, and he spoke a lot about death. It was like, everything we say about death is to cope with our complete inability to say anything about it. Like, may you know no more sorrow. But I will though. Right? <laughs> right? Like that's, that's a completely nonsensical thing to say because I'm alive, therefore I will know more sorrow. Or you have my sympathy. No, I don't. I don't. You literally have no idea what I'm going through. Even if you had other people in your life die, that was completely unique and yours. Right? And like, you know, people say that someone has moved on or someone has passed. No, dude. They, they didn't go anywhere. Like, they're they're, they're dead, dead, bro. It's not a place. It's not an experience. It's not even if you fucking believe in the afterlife. Let's say you believe in heaven or whatever. By definition, heaven is completely alien to anything on earth. You cannot describe it. You cannot. It's like the the uh, Spinozian God. Like you cannot describe it. You cannot give it attributes. Rolling this back into the internet, like I feel like mid-era internet, and to some extent the early internet as well, wanted to ignore all this shit, right? It, it yeah. pretended that everything was fine. <clears throat> Like it didn't harbor, you know, let's, let me give you an example. I used to play MUDs, right? Text-based role-playing games. I was 15 and I'm, I was playing with complete strangers who would add me on Messenger and we would, you know, some of them would, um, there was nothing sexual. I, I wasn't like, I was smart enough to, to you know, fuck off when things got, got that way. But like parasocial relationships predate the current era of the internet by like a decade and I'm not a prude, I'm not a puritan saying that that was a bad experience and it shouldn't have happened to me but there is something fucked up about that experience there's something that needs to be interrogated there's something that needs to be looked at heads on and a lot of the early and the mid era internet was like nah nah, that's fine that's cool, the internet is about companionship and camaraderie and learning other people dude I watched a guy sit on a on a jar made of glass, glass ass. You you've seen yeah. glass ass, one right? One man, one jar. One man, one jar. Yeah. Yeah. One man, one jar. Dude, that shit traumatized me, like straight up. That shit fucked me up. I I could not sleep for like weeks after watching that shit. 
but everybody was all, ah, remember when we were kids and we would go on Rotten and we'd see all that fucked up shit? I'm sure that had no consequences, right? I'm sure, I'm sure that was totally fine. Like, people wanted to ignore the truly fucked up things or they, they, would, they would hand wave them as, as punk, right? They would ha- hand wave them as cool. And like, sure, it is cool. It's not, I don't regret doing that even though it fucked me up. It's an important part of life, like getting fucked up by shit. But there was a, a deep denial. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like- There was it, a deep it, denial. I, I, was, I was talking about this with a friend of like, um, we, we use the term consequences sometimes to singularly refer to a kind of negativity or- in Hegelian terms, and I guess more um, uh, Schopenhauerian terms, uh, like a negation. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's not a pure negation. It is it is the most neutral thing possible. Things happen, and then they change the course of other things. Like thinking about the um, the trite but fair example of like the way the course of rivers changes over decades and centuries. Um, that it can literally be like a little grain that causes the slight shift in flow of the water which causes a shift in sediment accretion which yada 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 um and the more that you try to put that away of like the reality that like consequences are just part of things um the more you build a kind of glass prison of like a false reality this this does actually cut into back into the traditional pomo stuff of like and why postmodernism as a uh, as a condition um became a named thing like this is why theorists cared about it is that it started as an analytic of um capitalism but eventually evolved into like is this is it is it something that capitalism created or does it emerge from capitalism because it is a broadly human thing and humans made capitalism? And that that's generally where people tend to fall on it now. The, the tendency towards a self-denial, we see this also in the way that people will, um, <clears throat> people will resist self-identification with negative attributes of themselves. They will want to associate themselves with things like, you know, my sense of charity, my sense of, uh, friendliness, my sense of humor, things like that. And they won't want to associate themselves with, you know, my, my, my lust, my anger, my, um, my flippant tongue or things like that. Now, obviously we get the secondary problem, which if anyone's been around the block a bit, they're probably telling themselves immediately the people that are the exact opposite of that, who definitely want to overly associate just with their purely negative components. And this leads to a similar sense of imbalance where it's um, neither of those are true images of the self or of action um in in both cases uh like the balancing thing is like no we are a constantly shifting mass of current historical and potential states um and it's hard to really convey to people like the immensity of how this is supposed to change how you view the world um it goes along with the thing you were saying about like death isn't death is the one thing that is neither a negation nor an affirmation it is it is a nullity and that's something yeah. that we don't it's, it's static right yeah, static we, we don't have a way really to parse nullity in fact that one of the great failures of a lot of the philosophical schools of the past several hundred years outside of the ones that just get called by people doomer doomer bullshit is to be fucking blunt with you they flinch in the face of death they really can't yeah. and it's not it's not that let me rephrase that it's not that they can't because they aren't capable of it 
in like a mechanical sense it's that they aren't capable in a sense of will like in the yeah. um, in the abstract sense of like the luciferian or nietzschean sense of will they don't have the capacity to actually stare into that abyss you read the act of them flinching it's the same thing that happens when communists or anarchists get overly utopian and say that like this shit will win and it's like that's a cope we all know that's a cope we all want that to be true we want that desperately to be true but if we believe that there is a determinist arc towards these engines of history i think a lot of the world would look fundamentally different i don't think we would be so enrobed in the con constancy of decay if that were the case and a lot of people get spooked by the fact that this sort of puts the task in front of us in like a loosely existential sense of like there is the coming into being, there is the struggle, and then there is death. Those are the three things. And just to be fair, that's a fucking bummer. Like, if you think about that too long, yeah. you're crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, and I also, I also think, you know, I don't know, I, I want to tie this to God. I've already, like, conjured the, the, the shadow of it. Like, let's say that the engines of history do exist okay like marx's very literal historical materialism and this hegelian idea of like you know th this is the inevitable outcome of history he didn't say any of that shit by the way but let's say that that reading of him is is correct um okay and like for something to relate to me it has to be alive i cannot relate to the dead right? the dead cannot relate to me for something to be alive it, it cannot be eternal Right? It has to be limited. It has to be present. It has to one day end in order to begin. Right? It Does has that to cliche be embedded in the meshwork of time? It can't. It can't be exactly. beyond timeness. Yeah, as the cliche says, like the price of presence is eventual absence. Right? The complete and pristine engines of history will go on without me. I have no impact on them. They have no impact on me. They tell me nothing. They they prescribe to me nothing. Same thing with the infinite, all-knowing, all-good, all-capable God, like, why would it, and it's not a he, it's an it, why would it ever be relevant to my life? Why would it ever be able to interact with my life? Um, why would it tell me anything? It is perfect, removed, clinical, detached. It is not relevant. And by the way, to their credit, some religious streams, like specific streams of Judaism, say, yes, right? Yes, you don't pray to God. God doesn't hear you. You cannot ask it for favors. In many ways, you know, Calvinism is, is the same, right? You were judged, and that's it. And that, that is it. You have nothing to do. God has decided because God is perfect, and you are a speck in his design, right? Um, and that, that has its own limitations, of course, but at least... It like takes the idea of, you know, cold infinity to its um, conclusion. I okay, mean, I feel like there's, this is the a, perfect... there's even a bleakness of the yeah. illusion of agency. And I mean this in the bleakest way possible. This is not meant to be like a positive, but for all the good that. Um, perpetuators of mass violence. I live in America, so I think about mass violence quite a bit. Uh, for all the good they think they're doing themselves, they get forgotten by the end of a week. Like, and it's, it, it, like, 
it's it's worth really interrogating and really sitting with that kind of profundity of the lack of meaning within agency in a lot of ways. Now, granted, this is counteracted by things like mass movements. I mean, that's that's where we see if the collective governments of the world didn't get didn't give a shit about um, pro-Palestinian resistance, there wouldn't be such a major backlash against it consistently. But the important thing there is um, movements of people in mass. Beyond that, we are in a lot of ways largely like stranded. It's people, the Beatles really weren't kidding when they said, uh, love all there is. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Okay. Let's a lot of this, by the way, when I, when I set out to talk about this topic, I, I didn't consider how it ties into the book you want to talk about, but the subconscious be cool like that. Um, and it actually led to the perfect, uh, segue into the book. However, of course it's music first. And I feel like there's only one choice of like music that channels everything we've been talking about and has also been insanely popular the last few weeks. And that is Vitriol. God damn, uh, this record is so fucking good. So Vitriol, interesting like progression for this band, right? They released their debut in 2017, uh, Pain Will Define Their Death. And everybody went, this was an EP, and everybody went not so bananas for this album. In, myself included, like super aggressive but tight death metal running like the gamut between brutal death metal, technical death metal, black and so on. And it was just like the most pissed off shit I had heard in a long time. And then they followed it up with an album back in, I mean, they had one in 2019, I think, and then another one in 2022. I um, that, that's kind of like, uh, yeah. Trying to figure out which they one were. They're kind of like going. They were less like universally celebrated. I didn't really like them. Uh, uh, the parting of a neck uh, was a. Oh, sorry, that's a single. Uh, to bay from the thought of cowardice in 2019, and then Antichrist in 2021, and they were kind of like people liked them, but it wasn't as universally lauded as the debut. And I also thought it was a step down in in sort of ways. So when they released, they announced a new one, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll check this out. But this year they released Suffer and Become. And holy fuck, this album just goes so fucking hard. So they really leaned into the tech dev stuff, but don't think like uh, Arcspire or Cognizance or any of those guys. Not the spidery, cold, angular tech dev, but like the completely let loose, guttural flamboyant over the top tech death of you know the 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 early 90s right it, it also um, feels a bit like origin at times with like how yeah yeah i was gonna say how fucking blistering the shit is like it's yeah it's, it's like if a tech death band was playing with slayer energy yeah i was gonna say origin i was gonna say like the early obscure stuff right um that kind of yeah, shit like, like Overlord, super that shit rules Overload? Yes, Anti-cosmic overload. Does. That's what it is. Whatever. Yeah. Um, anyway, this album is like, what if restraint was a bad word? <laughs> right? Like, what if restraint was the thing you want the least of? Um, it's just every single choice that could be made was made towards the end of the knob that says maximalism. Um, it fucking slaps. I'm going to play 
Locked in Thy Frothing Wisdom. That's the name of the track. Uh, they have the best track names like The Isolating Lie of Learning Another, um, Flood of Predation, Nursing from the Mother Wound. But this is Locked in Thy Frothing Wisdom and it fucking rules and it's going to rock your shit super hard. And after that, we'll talk about the book.
Okay. So the book we want to talk about today is another entry in the series of I read whatever Jeff Vandermeer recommends. Um, this is like the 10th book I've read now just because it has a Jeff Vandermeer blob and he has yet to uh, fail me. Um, we are going to be discussing Archivist Wasp, a novel by, I have no idea how to pronounce the last name, Nicole Corner Stace, I want to say. Um, they're American, so uh, maybe that's how you pronounce it. And this is a good YA novel. Yeah. Uh, is it YA? We'll talk about that. But it definitely is being classified as YA. It won the, um, is it Kirkus? Circus Reviews Best Teen Books of 2015. Uh, I think it's Book pronounced Kirkus, yeah. Los Angeles Times, Locus recommended reading, and they, all in categories of like fiction for young adults, teen books, uh, young readers, and so on. To synopsize the, the plot in a post-apocalyptic setting, um, there's this position called archivist, which is the person who keeps away the ghosts. The way they keep away the ghosts is by you know, old school like ideas of uh, sympathetic magic, right? Like blood, salt, names, uh, violence, like thoughts to like, all that stuff. Um, up until now, you know, pretty pretty standard. The thing is, ghosts are brutal and uh, post-apocalyptic society is brutal. So this archivist has to be this insanely violent and uh, willful person. So the way they get picked is babies are grown basically from birth against each other. <coughs> They're called upstarts and they are pitted at one another until one of them kills the current archivist and becomes archivist in their turn. And then that archivist has to fend off the other upstarts and so on and so forth. Um, and this archivist called Wasp, which is the name you get when you uh, become an archivist, she, she's called Wasp because she like, you know, uh, um, Good with a stinger. That, that's the joke. Um, she is contacted by a ghost to help her find another ghost. One last uh, twist or like uh, detail. The ghost is of a dead super soldier. Um, and he's still like super violent and super capable. And he's this other ghost that he's looking for is also a super soldier. And they have to go into the underworld to find her. That's all I'm going to say because there's a lot of like revelations and the whole idea is like peeling back the mystery of, of this ghost. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I don't know how, how you felt about it. I, um, I struggled a little bit with it. Not that it was... Um, I struggled with it in a way that was definitely not its fault. Like it... I definitely agree that it's a YA book in a modal sense i should say so i think this actually gets into an interesting at least for me <laughs> interesting bracketing of when we say ya what do we mean um and i'll be clear with everyone i don't really care what the marketing people say i'm aware that for a huge chunk of people it is purely a marketing term that exists in order to move products to a demographic and that's that's fine i don't give a shit i'm an art critic so <laughs> I, I can just kind of ignore <laughs> that if i want um i think in terms of a usable um 
variant of it uh, for someone like me, it refers to either art about the experience of a young adult in emergent adulthood, emergent personhood, which this falls under, um, granted in like a deeply fantastical substrate, but it's there, or art written in a way that is meant to be approachable by those people. And so that can be a kind of um, transparency and lightness of prose. So like um, the prosaic density here isn't going to strictly measure up to say your Pinchons or your Joyce's or um, your Toni Morrison's or things like that, or especially not um, trying to remember the name of that German guy who would write literally like, like 600 page books that had no paragraph breaks. They were just like slabs of text. Um, can't remember his name off the top of my head. Grad school bangers all. Um, and that's, that's not a knock. That's like, obviously, um, part of where my frustration with even a lot of what I refer to as quite bad criticism of YA and the industry of YA sort of presumes that the form itself is a villainous form, which I do strongly disagree with. I think very strongly that all people deserve a literature that speaks to them and speaks to their experience. All people deserve a literature that speaks to their capacity towards literacy, all these kinds of things. Like we don't, we're not benefited by shutting people out in that way. And in fact, we don't get people who are capable of producing better, stronger work per my definitions. If you don't graduate them in that manner, like, it's it's a purely mechanical thing you don't get to step three unless you have step one um just is what it is uh that said there are still for me limits where i look at something and go this is a very strong piece of work for an audience that isn't me like there are a bunch of ideas here like how it handled um the question of archivists and especially positioning them as archives touches on something that a very dear friend of mine named Sean um, had studied doing PhD studies of, of um, the general theor um, theoretical object of an archive and the question of like history and physics being auto archival processes. Like the fundamental laws of physics that we have by their nature encode the events of the universe into the present conditions of the universe. If you were able to magically know the uh, location trajectory and velocity of every particle present, you would be able to retroactively roll back and figure out basically any previous state of the world. Literally, the world becomes its own archival record. It's not necessarily legible to us, but it is an archive. Likewise, things like scar tissue and the formulation of the brain are the auto-archival processes of the body, of the mind, stuff like that. Um, so th there's a lot there that definitely plays to a lot of my interests. Um, this, yeah, for me... I think oh, you go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with what, you, what you're saying, and then the last piece is the most important one, I think, because what struck me about Archivist Wasp is the style, for sure, the style of writing is, like you said, you know, targeted towards this demographic and towards, you know, a style that they can relate to. But then the the content is so much more fleshed out and honest, and that goes back to our previous discussion, right? Um, than a lot of the stuff that happens in these spaces, right? Because my problem with YA is not necessarily the level of writing. It's about, it's how fucking saccharine it all is. 
I th- I think the best example, and this is low hanging fruit, right? Like I'm kicking a horse while it's down, but <clears throat> it's the best example I can think of is the Hunger Games, right? Like this is supposed to be this brutally militaristic and competitive society, right? Where people get sacrificed basically to, I don't know, appease the gods or whatever. And yet it's not, right? Like it's supposed to be full of these jaded assholes that don't care about each other, but the book is full with like, the, the, the whole point of the book is coming together, right? And collaborating and rising it above. And like, what about teens makes people think that they can't handle shit, right? Like yeah, right. being a teenager is hard. <laughs> right like you i see some have messed up shit said that i would i'd rather fucking kill myself than have to relive the years between about like 11 and 15 yeah th- th- those are ridiculously like, hard years like i've had worse events why? happen in my life but i was the least prepared to handle them and the least protected by people around me in that window right i agree with you 100 percent and but people tiptoe on this shit and when they write books for people of those ages and also ages all the way up until like 1920 um they write saccharine hope-filled drivel right where heroes rise above the circumstance by you know figuring out that the the real adventure was the friends we made along the way and all that bullshit archivist wasp is fucking bleak man yeah it's it's bleak. It, it and that that's that's the point where I was I was struggling to say like I struggled with it because to be fair in a lot of I come from the perspective of I am myself also a prose writer outside of also doing um like critical work about art. So the part of my brain that really lights up when I'm looking at like someone's sentence work and how they can weave like a thread of beauty or despair into things wasn't lighting up as strong for this book as it had been for other books. But it, this isn't to knock the material, and this also, uh, there's a part of me that, there's a part of me that greatly appreciates stuff that I give a massive amount of a shit about that often gets read by others as, like, too heady or too abstract, being being rendered in a way that I feel like other people will read it and go, I get why someone gives a shit about this. Like, that, that means a lot to me. In fact, a lot of like the bigger project of bigger um, writing endeavors that I do, especially the longer form stuff, even like the nonfiction critical stuff, is ultimately trying to convey, why do I give so much of a shit about this that I'm spending so long crafting this thing in a way that implies why someone else might give a shit? And so seeing something that takes very seriously so a lot of the same stuff that I find tremendously meaningful was itself like quite a lovely thing i feel like uh this is um i think it should be a moment of us realizing that certain artists uh, had been telling on themselves when we saw a similar kind of reaction from certain people uh regarding harry potter when you have certain writers like established writers like fawning over it you kind of have to go like you don't just fawn over something because you think it is generally good at what it does. Because that's, you just go, okay, that's fine. You do it because it touches something within you that you think is meaningful, that you think it's going to make more accessible, make more transparent, make impact more heavily. And it's very telling when we get someone like Stephen King going, this this shit's amazing. It's going to usher in a new era of literacy. And Ursula K. Le Guin, who wrote 
for my money, probably the greatest YA book of all time um, in Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, yeah. Uh, going like, nah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> also, are the goblins Jews? I don't yeah. like that. Like, this is this like, far more yeah. in the sense of like, this is very satisfying in what it does. Um, yeah. I think for me, you know, it's true that like, you know, sentence by sentence, nothing in Alchemist Wasp really um, jumped at me. But that's also, I don't think that's what it's trying to do, right? Yeah, I so, agree with that. It's it's not failing to do that. That's that's not part of its overall yeah, project. Exactly. Like at its core, Alchemist Wasp is a catabasis story. Yeah. Right. Story about going to the underworld. Right. Uh, by the way, spoilers. Um, that's literally. What happens, right? Uh, I mean, to be whilst... fair, if you hear that's a story about ghosts and you don't think there's going to be a kind of psychopomp figure, a Virgilian, yeah, you're an Adante-esque figure. Like, you, it's Western literature still, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think that um, what Archivist Wasp does really well is portray, and this is what I think it's funny to say, that Dante failed, right? One of the greatest uh, poets of, of history, but like, the the tameness of hell to him towards him right like the accessibility yeah. of it is really because he wanted to dunk on uh Flo florentine uh, uh politics right but like what alchemist wasp does really really well is capture the disorienting feeling of the underworld and how things just don't again like we said like how death is an empty category where things don't really happen for a reason and some of it is just inventiveness, right? Like some of the scenes in, in the realm of the ghosts in, in the book are just very inventive. Um, like, you know, they're effective on an aesthetic level. Uh, the, the hounds that, that chase her, what, what, are they, what are they called in the book? Lurchers. And, um, Which is a the... sick fucking name for something. That was like... Oh, yeah. There's, there's a level of... There, there are charms in this. Uh, and I'm not sure if I would describe them as like literary or not this is not a knock it's just for me they were quite simply charms of little things like like calling calling them the lurchers again the archivists there's certain um events all that the names of the hell. all um, the names of the deities yeah they're like little things where i'm like ah oh, that just feel that just feels nice i like this yeah i really liked i really like the names of the deities like the one who got away and the chooser um, and then, of course, the the main deity, which is this psychopomp bear hound that get, get, takes ghosts to the other side of the underworld, who's called Catchkeep. Um, I think that's done really, really well. But besides just being like, um, you know, irrational and so on, everything is so visceral, right? Like there's guts and blood and pain and violence. And another thing that I really liked... It, in its visceralness, like the two characters hate each other all the way to the end of the book. Because usually in YA, right, the characters think about, wait, that's the example I want to give? Yeah, Lord of the Rings, right? Think about Lord <laughs> of the Rings where everybody starts, you know, the hobbits are super suspicious of Aragorn to begin with, right? And then way too quickly, they become best friends, I feel. Right, that it happens too quickly in in the books. Yeah. 
And like um, he's able to get away with it because of how broadly allegorical a lot of the function of Lord yeah, of the Rings of is. Course. But if the minute that you displace it from that kind of mode, it or rather, let me rephrase that: the further you displace it from that kind of mode, the more suspicious some of the plot specific plot beats in the story become. Yeah, yeah, of course he's talking right. He can get away yeah. with a lot, but here, like, there's a lot of patience in in the writing of the book. Right? There's a lot of patience in, okay, we all want these characters to get along because it doesn't feel nice to read two characters who are uh, have egos and are too self-proud and won't collaborate because they're stupid, angry people, right? But instead of just like, you know, the first few chapters and then they find a begrudging respect and then they become best friends and they save each other from death and everything's resolved. No, it takes like, there's, there's like torture in this book, like full-on breaking people's bones and healing them so you can break them again like sick ass shit and only through again it's a catabasis right so only through like going for the darkest lowest places do these people reforge themselves into anything that resembles collaboration and respect and so on and i just felt like the trope of the catabasis was handled really well um by colonel stace right like i would i, I would agree with that She's so patient with, with with the changes, with the metamorphosis, right? Um, and and I just really enjoy that again because so much of YA feels rushed. Yeah, it's and like that. That's why I think that like for me, it's not a it's not a knock to refer to this as like executing its formal mode, um, because that's also explicitly saying that like none of the because like what you were saying, my 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 issue with YA and like the, the glut of quite bad YA we have is not that I don't strongly connect with a lot of it prosaically because that's lots of prose styles exist in the world. Not everyone's going to love every single one. And even if you have like as open a mind as both a composer of art and also like a critic of art, you have limits. Like I don't, we've talked about this before in regards to like music criticism stuff. It doesn't behoove everyone. I'm not going to be able to write a good fucking Blink-182 uh, review. Cause I fucking hate pop punk. Like I'm not going to be good <laughs> at it. So it's like, and that's not a knock to the form. That's not a knock to the people who love it. That's not a knock to the people who even dislike it, but are a bit more enunciative about why. Um, it's, I'm just not one of those people. So it's like, that's not really a flaw. That's just taste. The flaws I see it is like what you said, how much is so liberally saccharine and self-satisfied with often quite piss poor politics. Like it, it couches its existence on the existence of its political leanings that are then piss poor, poorly thought through liberal bullshit rather than like rigorous materialist stuff. Also the hyperfixation on hope, which I will say a million times, if you require a utopian image for hope, you are in a cult. That is not psychologically good for you. Um, you need to be able to build the robustness to face the world and learn to grapple with the problems and work there is to do within the world, not fucking lie to yourself. Um, the fact that my critique of this book is that I didn't really connect with it prosaically is testament to the fact that it did not trip any of those other switches for me. Like the book is yeah. very well composed. This is something that I would feel comfortable handing to someone and would think to myself, this is a person when they read this, that will one day go on to get curious about, um, 
about uh, Paul Anderson, about um, Damon Knight, about uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, about Gene Wolfe, all that kind of stuff. Like the way that we want someone, because that's the other key role of YA, is to be like a graduation process. Uh, the best YA doesn't want to keep you trapped within YA. It wants to kind of train you up and make you better so that you can take on more and uh, more ambitious challenges, be they aesthetical challenges, be they emotional challenges, be they experiential challenges. And this, I feel, does in fact satisfactorily, would in fact satisfactorily build a reader in that way, which for me, I think is like the best piece of acclaim you can give to a piece of YA because that's like, that's its chief role for me. Yeah. And I think I really agree with that. And I think the graduation, which is a very interesting term to use in the context of catabasis, right? Because that's the whole idea of a catabasis. Um, in Archivist Wasp, again, goes back to our previous topic of discussion, which is the sick denial of death, oh, yeah. right? Um, like, again, Hunger Games comes to mind once again, like how sanitized everything people are being hunted that's the story of the book the hunting of people and yet it's all like heroic and clean and done from a distance and shit like that in archivist wasp like it also begins with her like recounting being hunted and and, and almost killed and it's ugly right it's sick it's it's visceral people bleed to death and get fever and and you know go mad and and everyone like when the archivist kills the upstarts she cuts off their hair and braids it into her own and like the main character makes it a point to point out how they don't wash it so she's always walking around with the smell of death on her like yeah of, of course we <laughs> don't meet people who, who yeah and it's like it's it's not that we meet people literally walking around with other people's um hair on them that's that's not the point the point is like the people we hurt the things that we do the choices we make have an impact on our life they cannot be denied right their power cannot be denied we carry them with us and in order to make peace with them which is of course what the character eventually does you know spoilers right she goes under the catabasis and they find this ghost of the other super soldier or foster and by the way the the point of the book, like the regret that kept the super soldier ghost around is that he didn't kill her. He didn't kill Foster when she asked him to, instead of becoming like, they lobotomized her basically, like the government that activated them both. This is a YA novel. When was the last time you read any shit like that in a YA novel? That is, that, that is his main regret, that he didn't have the courage like to be there for her and put her out of the, her misery. Um, and when she understands all that and she understands how I mean, the archivist, right? Wasp, uh, Isabel is like her real name. Um, when she understands through this journey that saving violence is not always good, that sometimes a situation calls for terrible decisions and enacting violence even on others and yourself, that's the only time, that, that's the moment that she's able to go back and, and like tear down this awful tradition of the upstarts and the killing and Obviously, there's like a, an evil like priest, like a catchkeep priest who benefits from all of this, and she tells him down and so on. However, real spoilers now. The last scene 
is the ghost revisiting her like a few years after, after she rebuilds this community and saying, if you want to come with us, we'll kill you. We'll make it quick. So you become a ghost and you can come with us. And she doesn't say no. She says, not right now. So basically the book, again, quote unquote, YA, ends with this idea that, yes, sometimes death is fine. Or rather, it has a place. It's a part of living. And when we think about it, when we come to terms with it, like deeply, not, not just in our imaginations, but like experiencing it, we can maybe take away some of its, pun not intended, sting, right? Um, and make it something that is not to be feared, but rather to be respected, um, to be avoided, but not at all cost, um, to be negotiated with in, in some way, which I just felt like was way more subtle than any other book, well, except for the greats that you mentioned. By the way, also Le Guin also wrote another really good um, YA series, um, the, the Annals of the Western Shore, I think it was called. Um, the first book is called Powers, Those which is also a very interesting. Read. Oh, yeah, Annals of the Western Shore. It, no, Powers is the third one. Um, what's, the, what's the first one? Gifts, I think. It's a very, I mean, it's also a green light. Obviously, it's yeah. very good. Um, it's, all, it's also YA, and, and it also has the subtlety, you know, to handle some of these issues. But again, we're talking about one of the best writers of English fiction in, in the 20th century. Yeah, be, by and large, the best... by one of the best of all time is not. This is not a knock. Tenuous. Yeah, exactly. No, but I'm not even saying that Alcovis was was being outclassed by it. I'm putting it on the same level, not the level of prose, which again is fine to be outclassed in prose by Ursula Le Guin, but in the sense of the subtlety of the ideas it wants to engage with and is willing to engage with, without sacrificing what you mentioned, Langdon, which is its readability and its approachability, right? And that is maybe the lesson of The Wizard of Elfsea, right? And in general, Ursula's writing. I don't have to write all fancy and like use, you know, college words and, um, you know, mess around with the format of my books and uh, not use punctuation or whatever to write subtle and effective um, works. Yeah, admittedly, a lot of my... um yearning toward that kind of form and aggravation against things that don't possess it some of that is admittedly a bit childish but we all possess childishness this is this is part of the joys of living um but but part of it is also seeing how wantonly people will attempt to say that these things not only possess no value but in fact possess a negative value because more or less they won't say it it reminds them of someone that they don't like in the past or reminds them of feeling less than or things like that. Like I strongly believe there isn't really anyone who sincerely thinks uh, like Moby Dick or the works of James Joyce are bad novels. Now I think there are people who think like I can get what this has in other places. I don't really need this. Or like I was, this was foisted on me in a way that was like um, cruel, weird and stupid, like all kinds of stuff like that that are all valid. But like, I, I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to be like, do you think it is a poorly composed work? Um, but as a result of certain internet discourses um, and th that pre-exist the internet, to be fair, that the accusations of pretension within the art world are um, age immemorial um, or time immemorial, I should say. But that has me admittedly a bit uh, sensitive to 
instances where I feel like something would be looked over because it is perceived as being more full of itself or, you know, whatever than it actually is, which is just like, if I can do it, I'd like to and just see how it feels, see how it works. Now, granted, Mm -hmm. this work doesn't do that. This work doesn't feel because that's the other thing that drives me up the fucking wall about a lot of YA is it feels like it has a chip on its shoulder about people don't think I'm as good as a literary fiction. And it's like, yeah, I'll cop to that. I don't. And in a lot of cases, that's earned. there are cases where I get taught to shut the fuck up about that by a really <laughs> well-written book. And that's, that's the be- eating crow because things are better than you thought they would be best kind of shit to happen to you. But in a lot of cases it doesn't in part because a lot of those authors aren't actually pushing themselves. Like there's a difference between mm-hmm. say when Ursula K. Le Guin arrives at a YA a sense of prose because she has honed it to that degree versus a lot of not this book but a lot of contemporary ya without naming names you can you can google how people currently feel about this stuff and find some names i don't we don't need to hop into that um fucking useless bedlam um talk about a fucking gain nothing internet fight um but there are plenty of instances where it reads like the prosaicness of a work just simply isn't ambitious like they probably actually don't have the skill to hang with these other people. They've not made a choice to write in a mode and to develop that mode to the best of their ability. They are in fact entrapped by the limits of their ability. And that's not really something that I need to artistically respect a great deal. Um, Or at least not to the same degree as someone who has made the choice and put in the work to develop a certain voice. Like one of the most beloved YA fantasy writers is Tamora Pierce, no one has a negative word to say about her. You definitely outgrow Tamora Pierce. There is a point where you like, I'm not going to connect with this at all, but good fucking Lord, does she fucking kill it in the temporal and experiential window that she designed her work for? Fucking crushes it. Um, so like most of my issue that comes from YA that in the case of a work like this, I tend to have to get over in order to acknowledge like, okay, no, this work is, this work is, doing itself very well like i need to adjust what i'm looking for from a work this isn't failing in certain ways it's just doing something else um but i do wind up getting a chip put on my shoulder incidentally by a bunch of people who feel like they get very lippy about the existence of work that they know is in fact written better than their favorites and instead of just acknowledging like a normal person like yeah maybe maybe i'm not here looking for literally the best written book of all time maybe that's not what i'm going to literature for maybe that's not what i'm looking for in art like in the world of music you don't always look at everything and go this is literally the greatest guitarist of all time but you go yeah but i like their songs more that me it means something to me and that's that's itself a meaning um it i i rankle sometimes when i think about how a lot of the grief politics or, or politics of being aggrieved that get uh wielded within the world of literature are more um how come these people looked down their nose at me I'm like, just write just write a good book if you write a good book just like I the book shut the fuck up. the words it's good yeah just write the book i i i really agree with everything you said and i think that the last point about you know um stepping it's not stepping outside of yourself. It's the opposite. Like stepping into yourself and saying, it's not that I'm saying that this person is objectively the best guitar player. I just like their music more. 
um, is the recognition that art happens between two or more entities, the person who made the art and the person who is experiencing the art. So all the people trying to dunk on like modern art and saying, what, just because you like this, it means it's a good painting? Yes, that is exactly what it means. It's a good painting because I think it is a good painting. I respond to it. I like it. If I can then take those feelings and couch it in language and critique, then fantastic. But critique does not determine whether art is good or not. That is also another major misconception. Like people ask me a lot about why does Heavy Blog still write reviews if people can go and listen to the album? And I'm like, if a review says if the album is good or not, it's not a good review. Okay? Yeah. An album is there. Uh, sorry, Strong a review is there. Of, yeah. The review is there to give you additional context for which to perceive the art. It's there to like go deeper than a Google search and say, hey, did you know that these guys come from the same town as this other band? And it's not um, imaginary to say that they heard each other's music and are influenced. Or even without that like framework in the real world, have you ever considered how much this sounds like Schmode? I'd like writing an Ulver review, which I did, and talking about the Roman Empire, like the perception of the Roman Empire and Ulver's work. Maybe Ulver didn't even fucking know that they did all that shit. They totally did, but let, just as an example. Like, it's not about whether the album is good. Now, bringing it back to Archivist Wasp, at the end of the day, and this is true for every book we'll ever talk about on here, even the ones who are nominally bad, they did something to us, right? They made us feel something strongly enough. We've been recording now. I have a timer for an hour and 17 minutes. And we did it. Like we said, this episode will be about Archivist Wasp. We didn't choose another book. We chose this book. And maybe people are not aware, but like we don't cover every book we read. Yeah. We read a lot and we never we never fact, talk about it. In on fact, I'm a, li- I'm a little bummed. This is, I couldn't bring it up. Part of the thing that is difficult with this book is this book is slightly worse than the book that we were reading that we, we called it, at least temporarily because Jesus, it's a bummer, but you know, yeah, that also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we can say, we can say which book, book, by the way. Oh, uh, Pest we were, by, by Michael we were, yeah, we were reading, exactly. We were reading Michael Sisko's Pest, which is, Fucking again, brilliant. no, no offense intended to um, Colonel Stace, but like Michael Cisco is one of the best writers operating today. But it's it's like getting your your brain flayed from inside out with like echo. It's so depressing, and we were like, "This is not good for us right now. Right? This is not what we want to read. This is not what we want to talk about." Um, and that is art. That's how art fucking works. And again, to tie it back to Archivist Wasp, before you choose a song and. And take us uh, take us away. Like for a book to do that to me at least, and I, I think to you as well, right? I know you pretty well at this point. It needs to be honest. Yeah. Right? That's like one of the baseline requirements for us to react to a book. Because something that is dishonest, like the Hunger Games, and again, it's not just the Hunger Games, it's the Hunger Games is a typification of the genre in which they work. They're just plastic, right? They're dishonest in the way that like a, 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 a squeaky clean doctor's office is spotless. You are here, dentist, let's use a dentist, right? You are here sticking your fingers in people's mouths, right? Their b- hot breath, I'm doing Michael Cisco now, right? Their hot <laughs> breath is like stinky in your face. You're sweating. 
you you excise rot from their mouth. You you see blood and all that shit. And yet everything is spotless. Not spotless in the sense of, of course, you should clean the fucking floor because blood is like, you know, it can carry diseases and and it's not sanitary. But like it's spotless also like everybody's smiling. All the pamphlets are bright. Like this is a place of pain. This is a place of pain. And you completely disregard that. I'm not saying there should be chains and hunks of meat at a dentist's receptionist office. I, that would I, be am, I am saying that. I am yeah, saying that. Yeah, Langdon, Langdon is saying that. But I'm saying there could be some, some recognition of what's about to happen, right? Like some, okay, so you're here. This is going to suck. Let's talk about it. It's not going to suck as bad as you probably think. Let's, let's get it out of the open, right? Let's air it out. And Archivist Wasp, in many ways, does that. Like, growing up, sucks ass. People dying is awful. The transformative things that we have to do to ourselves, the, the, the truths that we have to accept, they hurt in, in a non-nice way, in a non-gift-wrapped, you know, uh, 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 closing the loop, everything will be fine in the end way. They just, it just hurts. So I feel like that's the essential bad word to use, but in this case, I'll allow it. Um, quality of, of good art is like being honest. And that's what I liked about Archivist Wasp. Right? It's very, very honest with how this world that it imagines would actually work and how brutal and hard and abrasive it would be. It's um, for, for, for me, this, this uh, to, to wrap up a final thought, Jesus, my, so unrelated, um, if anyone wants to eliminate my upstairs and downstairs neighbors through illegal means, feel free. Um, <laughs> They, they make <laughs> fucking noise. Um, that's the, that's apartment living. Um, for for me, connecting with the work, um, I have to speak about this through the language of uh, through the language of criticism because, like, the fact that I became both a writer and an art critic is not separable for me from the same part of me that loves art and the part of me that's just alive. Like, it's it's a very natural extension. And that's that, like, what I'm looking for in a work is for something to be interesting to me. Now, if that sounds, like, kind of open-ended, it's, like, mm -hmm. it's deliberately open-ended. That's, like, the reason why I don't like certain schlock. Like, for me, schlock is a lot of, like, iffy prestige TV that seems to exist just for its own sake, or a lot of, like, contemporary Doctor Who, I think, fucking sucks ass. Not because it's woke, but because I don't like i don't like stephen moffat i don't like that writing style it it violates a lot of what i look for in the doctor it's boring yeah exactly so it's like i'm looking for that thing that that spark like the the part of me that loves being a critic is the same part of me to first talk like an artist looking for the thing where if i break apart your work into its million constituent parts that I learn over the course of a lifetime of making and engaging with art and reading criticism about art to be able to recognize what one thing, and all it takes sometimes is one thing to look at and go, Jesus, that's a really good idea. Or like, oh, that's a really interesting way to use that. Like all it really takes is one. The more stuff there is, obviously, the more I will like something or the more catching an idea is, the more I'll like it. But to feel meaningful to me, all it needs is that one thing. That's the part that makes me so tireless. Again, we've offhandedly mentioned how many records in thumbnail people like me or Eden will listen to over the course of a year. Um, like I listen to between 10 to 20 new records a week um, every single week throughout the year. So that's between yeah. um, 500 to 1,000 new records. This isn't counting records that I've heard before that I'm throwing on. 
Um, I also read a lot. Um, I to make time for this, I don't really watch TV. I don't really go out. So if you're wondering how to, how, this has to be a lie. How do you do it? You probably have a more active social life than me. <laughs> but uh, that's the power of autism, baby. Um, but but as a result, <laughs> like, one, of guess. The, one of the reasons why I can so tirelessly do that is because that thrill of finding the thing is so meaningful to me. As an artist, you find that thing and it goes into your toolkit. You go, I'm going to use that one day, or I'm going to remember that I can use that. And that's the stuff that really, you know that an artist is growing the more they're accumulating these things and letting the organic thing grow as messy and as weird as it can. And, you know, using all their skills afterwards to maybe edit it into certain shapes or unedit it into wild or less controlled shapes. Now this ties into the part of me that's a critic because I think the the role of criticism is to break down, basically provide for someone who is not an artist the way that an artist thinks about a piece of work. Maybe not the artist that made the work. Like, I don't need to know your actual influences, but I need to be able to elucidate as someone who's heard a lot of stuff and thinks about a lot of stuff, what is going through my mind as I hear this record? What am I feeling when I hear this record? Why do I think these feelings are being provoked? What can I draw from the text to go? I get the sense of like, like there's that one band called like Valerian or something. It has like a blue dude with a sword on the cover, the like epic black metal record from I think earlier this year. Maybe late. You last. just described like faulty albums. There's one that has like it, it looks like a fucking um uh uh Elric ass motherfucker on the cover, and it's like a folksy um progressive black metal record. That's that's a lot of shit that we listen to. So you just really described bad. another faulty albums, man. Yeah, but, <laughs> I don't know like, what to tell you. But like you know, you listen to something like that, and you go, oh, you know, this creates senses of like euphoria and triumph, and I want to tie that to what's actually occurring within the record. So maybe. Maybe you read just this one review and you don't read anything else I ever read or anything else I've ever written. But now you're a little bit better at talking about every record you hear from now on. Like that's sort of the hope. And that even if my name disappears from your lips, you forget that you learned a lot of this stuff from me. I don't care. I've made you more capable of communicating to the people you care about why you love what you do. Uh, and then the other audience is being able to tell a band, like, I am receiving what you're doing, and I am thinking through and feeling through what you're doing, which some people will like to act all big and be like, I don't care about reviews. I just want them to push my record so I get units. I've gotten your emails and your private messages. I know that you care. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I know that Eden has too. Like, and it's really meaningful to us, too, when someone's like, hey, it actually means a shitload that you gave enough time and attention to really break down what I was doing. That's, that's really fucking flattering because a lot of people throw work out there and they never know if anyone's going to give a fuck. So like it is very much a mutual thing, but all of this comes down to these all revolve around that same part of me internally. These are all mechanics I developed to chase the same internal thing, which is finding that thing that that's what I want. That's what I go to art for is to find that thing. And it's deliberately yeah. open-ended because sometimes that's, it's the same part of me that as a writer, depending on where you find me, you may think of me as like overly brainy, hyper architectural stuff or way too loose and crass and lewd comedic writing or like 
um, weird, crunchy fiction or avant-garde poetry or any of this stuff. I have all of these different angles that feel juxtapositional because like a lot of people, I didn't grow up going, I want to write one thing. That's the one thing I want to do. Just this one little angle. I was like, I like writing. And if there's a part of me that needs to be mapped this way, I want to write it that way. Or if it would be interesting the next day to map it in this completely counter uh, manner, I want to do that too. Because, you know, all the writers I grew up loving, all the musicians I grew up loving, all the fine artists I grew up loving didn't really constrain themselves in that way. It was like, I want to use whatever tool I can. Because the act of doing this shit is thrilling. Um, This actually ties into the record I'm about to play. Um, So a critique of this record that I heard is that it reminded people a little bit too much of Tribulation. Now, without getting too in the weeds, um, Tribulation put out what, for me, is probably the best record of the 2010s. Um, or my favorite, I should say. It's probably not the best, but Children of the Night is... Yeah. That that just... That's, that's such a me record that I know there's ones that are better. Doesn't matter. Um... If you are way too overly plugged in, you can tell I'm about to say it's the new Chapel of uh, Chapel of Disease record uh, that I want to play a track from. Um, If you're not that plugged in, you have, again, better social life than me. (laughs) But I read I read that critique of this record and I find that just absolutely fucking like silly because like, again, for me and for so many people. Repugnant, the death metal band was such a magical group because from that one group that put out a pretty good record, not a brilliant record, but pretty good record. They break up. And within two years, the members of that band have formed in solitude, tribulation, ghost, and um, Magna Carta cartel, all of which are putting out music. Um, and all four of those bands are fucking great. Uh, yeah. Ghost is great. You can, you can go suck my dick about it. They're a great band. Um, now I can rank the bands within their ghost is probably my third favorite of those four bands, but like, they're all great. Um, so they, and they all have that magical thing to them of really being in impossibly genre agnostic. Each of them had like a central genre that you could say was the center of a pinwheel, but they all drew from like pomp rock and art rock to 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 prog to some classic rock stuff to some like art pop to goth rock to post-punk to black metal to death metal like and like that's the thing that i really love about this chapel of disease record i find it in fact that kind of broad rangedness being named as like the tribulation thing is one a testament to how fucking good those tribulation records are but too really fucking weird if you think about it for a while because it's like oh making a making a death metal record that is soupy and psychedelic because it draws from a great deal more than just the extreme metal playbook and naming that after one band feels like i'm saying this as an extreme metal fan to other extreme metal fans this is why everyone thinks we're insufferable (laughs) no this is why we we are insufferable like the fact that if you draw like in in every other space i am not a big fan of like bands like uh um bad omens or um falling in reverse or whatever like it's not my cup of tea but the fact that or bring me the horizon which i know um a lot of has a lot of crossover appeal um the fact that these groups can cross over to pop 
domains and can collaborate with pop artists and tour with pop bills and get on, get on with people is indicative of the fact that people do like heavy metal. They don't like us. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's worth interrogating. Is there a reason for that? And is that reason maybe a little valid? Like, um, so without getting too in the weeds there, I just, I really love the spirit of this record. I love the way that this record makes me feel. Um, I do wish the cover wasn't so kind of, um, <laughs> wishy-washy generically like, Oh, it's a picture of space. And like, I mean, I feel, I feel a way, you know, whenever I look at pictures of space, but whatever, I mean, the record feels good. And plus any, yeah. any band that lists its tags on, um, band camp as horrendous, Morbus Crone, Sweven, Tribulation. I, I know I'm going to love that record. I know. <laughs> like, um, this, this, I, is, I, I this wanna, is as pitch to me musically as saying you're influenced by Borge would be like prosaically. Like, I'm already sold. Um, yeah. I I want to say two things about Chapel of Disease. I also really like Chapel of Disease, and I don't like Tribulation, which is interesting. What the fuck? Um, we've spoken about this before. I know. I just, I hate you it. You know this. Fine. Sit with it. <laughs> Sit with your hate. Um, I two things I love about um, Chapel of Disease. One, on as we have seen the storm, we have embraced the eye. Twenty seventeen release. Uh, the second track is Oblivious, Obnoxious, Defiant, which is literally the chorus. Like the chorus is the vocalist going, Oblivious, Obnoxious, Defiant, which is just really, it's really sick. It's a really good <laughs> chorus, and I love them for it beyond just their music. And also I wanted to shout out, I can't tell if this album is also released by um, Van Records. Um, I can't tell if, if uh, uh, Echoes of Light is also on Van, but this is a good opportunity to like shout out Van Records. Um, this is a label that not many people talk about. Like they release really good stuff, but people don't, um, you know, they don't really shout them out on like, you know, like Willowtip or other. Yeah, yeah, it is full Van Records. Yeah. Um, there's a new Chapel of Disease as well. Yeah, they have like a lot of really good fucking bands. Um, and uh, Chapel of Disease. Uh, fucking great band. Yeah, Atl Atlantean Codex. Holder is on Van Records. They do have some sus stuff like Magla and Arstadir Lifsens and stuff like that. So maybe, you know, they, but you, you know our policy in Death Sentence, right? Like, um, do your own research. Yeah. Um, they have. Um, they briefly have on it. Six. They they got booted from it more yeah. or less right when everything dropped. But yeah, um, yeah, there's some there's some fucked up shit on here, but yeah. but some also some really good music. Saltilage, oh man, if you haven't heard Saltilage, you have to listen to fucking Saltilage. It's like heavy metal made by people who love heavy metal. Uh, Sulfurion. Is that how you pronounce it? Gull? 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce um, it. The records are good though. Uh, Frozen Soul is also on Van. Was um, on was on Van. Now they're on Century Media. Was on if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they got big, right? Like uh, yep. they got really big. Um, anyway, uh, do your research before listening to any of these bands. But they have some really good fucking stuff on um, on their roster. Um, and that's it. Uh, Langdon, which which Chapel of Disease are we listening to? Uh, I'm an album-oriented listener, so I always say, you know, go with the opening track. Except in this case, where you have a song like <laughs> and called A Death Though No Loss, which is like fucking laser-milled uh, for the discussion we've been having. Um, so I'm yeah. going to have to go with that one. Um, I would recommend 
these guys are very much an album-oriented band. If you go to, if you happen yeah. to get the record or are interested, do listen through it in album order. But that song, I think, fits what we're doing right now a little bit better. Yeah. Oh, this album was uh, recorded with uh, Michael Zek from Ruins of Beverest. Um, and Secrets of the Moon. Great fucking group. And Secrets of the Moon. Rest in peace, Secrets of yeah, the speaking Moon. Yeah, speaking of like, speaking of... So- Potentially problematic people, but who make fantastic music. Um, okay, uh, so this is Chapel of Disease, a death though no loss. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.